Welcome everyone to the inaugural episode of Heart Failure in Focus. I'm your host, Muthu Varginathan from the Brigham Women's Hospital, and I am delighted to announce our first expert guest who will be joining us, Professor Scott Solomon, the Edward Frolick Distinguished Chair of and Professor of Medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. He's a senior physician and clinical trialist. He has a really a um, contributed amazingly to building the foundation of heart failure care. And so it is uh, not more fitting um, uh, to have him here as our inaugural guest. Uh, he's also a uh, brilliant scientist and inspiring mentor to me and has uh, and our friendship has really blossomed over the uh, uh, last several years. Um, and I'm reminded by my wife that uh, each week I get a download of um, my most frequently contacted people uh, from my phone and in, uh, email server. And he always tops that list and she reminds me of that. Uh, so uh, welcome, Scott. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Muthu. Thanks for that great introduction. My wife is beginning to worry a little bit as well, but great to be here. And I'm really uh, uh, glad to be able to talk about uh, some of these new new data that, of course, you played such an important part in as well. Thank you, Scott. So today I'm super excited to be talking about Deliver, perhaps the most exciting trial of the year and one that is surely um, going to shape the future of heart failure care. Let's dive in a bit um, to uh, Deliver itself. And um, uh, if you can briefly summarize the eligible uh, eligibility criteria, focusing on perhaps some of the unique elements that may have distinguished Deliver from previous trials. Yeah. So um, Deliver was actually designed as the broadest inclusion of all of the trials in heart failure with mildly reduced and preserved ejection fraction. To get into Deliver, you had to have evidence of heart failure, uh, heart association class two to four. You had to have a left ventricular ejection fraction of greater than 40%. But importantly, we allowed patients in who had had a previous ejection fraction below 40% that had improved to over 40% by the time of enrollment. This is this new category that we're now calling heart failure with improved ejection fraction. Um, we used to call it heart failure with recovered ejection fraction, but I think improved is a is a better word. Uh, this has been a group of patients previously excluded from all other trials. The other group of patients that we included and deliver that have also not been in the prior trials are patients who were either uh, uh, enrolled in hospital during a hospitalization for heart failure or relatively soon after a hospitalization for heart failure. And we have those patients enrolled in Deliver as well. Deliver was uh, the largest of all the HEFPEF and heart failure mid-range ejection fraction trials. Uh, we ended up enrolling, uh, randomizing 6,263 uh, patients uh, in the study. And um, uh, that really, I think, made for an important, uh, uh, it, we were able to really uh, get at some questions with these other groups that other trials have not been able to get at. 
in addition uh, to be eligible for deliver, patients had to have uh, evidence of elevation in natriuretic peptides. And that elevation was dependent on whether or not they were in atrial fibrillation, higher for patients in atrial fibrillation. And they had to have evidence of structural heart disease so that we were confident that these patients had a problem with their heart. Oh, that was, that's excellent. And I, you know, I, uh, I share your sentiments in terms of the, the, those unique groups. Um, it couldn't be more timely. It seems very much aligned with where the directions, the guidelines are taking, including inclusion um, of uh, this heart failure with improved DF group and specific focus on the hospitalized patient, including in-hospital optimization of medical therapies. Um, that improved EF group really has had very little evidence previously um, and rely, you know, we really relied on um, relatively small clinical trials like TREDHF that was only about 50 to 60 patients uh, to inform our practice. So um, that's terrific. So let's uh, let's move to perhaps the exciting element. So did uh, deliver deliver? Yes, deliver definitely delivered. Um, we were very fortunate to have a um, uh, a positive result for our primary endpoint, which, as I said before, is a composite of cardiovascular death uh, uh, and worsening heart failure, which consists of either a heart failure hospitalization or an urgent heart failure visit. And this was reduced by 18%, um, highly statistically uh, significant. Um, and deliver, uh, we, we actually had a dual primary endpoint analysis in deliver in that we designed it so that we could ask the question in both the full population and in patients with a left ventricular ejection fraction less than 60%. And that was because, uh, as I mentioned, some of the earlier trials had shown attenuation of benefit uh, with uh, RAS inhibitors, with Sacubitril Valsartan, as ejection fraction went up. And we were worried that that might be the case. Uh, there was a hint that that might be the case from the Emperor Preserve trial. So we hedged our bets a little bit, and we designed this dual primary endpoint. As it turned out, the treatment effect was nearly identical in the patients with a left ventricular ejection fraction under 60% and over 60%. And uh, and in the whole population, so we're um, we were very fortunate um, uh, to see that uh, we uh, did see about a twenty one percent reduction in um, worsening heart failure. That of course drove the primary composite. We saw a twelve percent non significant reduction in cardiovascular uh, death. Uh, not unexpected in this population where cardiovascular death happens at a much lower rate than in patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. Excellent summary. Thank you. So um, I, I note that a couple of your secondary endpoints in DELIVER include quality of life as well as recurrent events or total events uh, that uh, occurred during the trial. And this, these, both these elements seem uh, particularly important in the context of heart failure with preserved DF because of the uh, undulating disease course and uh, kind of stepwise declines in health status that occurs in clinical practice. So tell me, um, uh, did you see uh, important improvements in those elements? 
Yeah, and you you uh, you're exactly right. Um, I like to say that patients with HEFPEF are the recidivists of heart failure because they come back and back and back to the hospital. And so uh, you do want to meaningfully reduce their burden of disease and keep them out of the hospital, not just the first time, but multiple times. That's what these recurrent event uh, analyses uh, look at. And and what we saw was a 23% overall reduction in um, the composite uh, of uh, total heart failure events and cardiovascular death. Uh, and, you know, that's, again, I think very meaningful because it it reflects really the disease burden that the patients feel. Um, in addition to that, we had benefit in terms of symptoms. Uh, we measured symptoms by the Kansas City Cardiomyopathy Questionnaire Total Symptom Score uh, from baseline to eight months in these patients, and we saw a, um, a significant improvement in symptoms. This is evidenced by a 2.4 point improvement in this measure overall. But even when we look at this in terms of the percentage of patients who have a five or a 10 or a 15 point improvement, it is significantly greater uh, in each of those cases in the dapagliflozin arm uh, compared to the placebo arm. So uh, this is important because uh, this was a secondary endpoint there was alpha allocated to it. And um, we think that it's really probably the first trial in this population that has shown a benefit in terms of quality of life in a, um, in a secondary endpoint, uh, at least in an outcomes trial. That's very exciting that um, uh, uh, about those endpoints as well as that there was um, no heterogeneity observed based on uh, ejection fraction above or below 60%. Were there any other subgroups that um, uh, were of note that uh, either derived lesser or greater benefit uh, with respect uh, to the study drug? Um, Muthu, we saw remarkable consistency across all of the subgroups. So I've already mentioned ejection fraction. In addition to that, we saw um, uh, similar benefits in the patients who were hospitalized recently uh, or within or were within were enrolled within 30 days of a heart failure hospitalization. And we saw similar benefits in terms of the patients who had heart failure with improved EF, those folks who had had a previous LVEF of less than 40 percent that had uh, improved by the time of enrollment. In addition, uh, whether you break up subgroups based on age, sex, um, uh, NT-proBNP, uh, geographic region, uh, every single one of our pre-specified subgroups, there was benefit in the dapagliflozin group compared to the uh, placebo group. Tremendous, tremendous. Any uh, safety issues or adverse events of interest that had um, uh, come out that perhaps was unexpected or uh, that you observed and deliver that clinicians uh, and patients should know about? Yeah, as you, as you know, there's a huge um, safety uh, body of data for dapagliflozin in particular, but also the all the SGLT2 inhibitors uh, that are available now. Um, and we're familiar with some of the sort of what we would call the nuisance issues in 
uh, with SGLT2 inhibitors. But in Deliver, we uh, primarily collected uh, serious adverse events and adverse events leading to discontinuation, um, both of which were essentially identical in the dapagliflozin and the uh, and the um, uh, placebo arm. I didn't mention this, but we saw discontinuation uh, of about 14.1 and 14.2% in these two arms, um, and essentially also identical uh, between dapagliflozin and placebo. Um, when you look at uh, some of the other selected adverse events, that we might be interested in with SGLT2s like amputation numerically lower in the dapagliflozin group, very small numbers and very similar for adverse events like diabetic ketoacidosis um, and uh, hypoglycemia. Terrific to hear and you know, congratulations to you, your re- leadership team, the investigators, and most importantly, the participants uh, who contributed to this. Um, uh, I think this is a tremendous advance, and as I understand it, um, these data will be uh, reviewed by regulatory bodies worldwide um, and will hopefully support an extension of labeling to uh, the entire spectrum of heart failure for this therapy, similar to what we've seen with um, the other compound empagliflozin. But I'd like to borrow your vision and perspective in the last few minutes here about what's to come. And um, what does the world of heart failure look like after um, deliver? And specifically, um, you have written uh, perhaps more than anyone in the world about ejection fraction and uh, therapeutic responsiveness. And so I'd love to hear your perspective. Um, It seems like ejection fraction didn't seem to matter in deliver. And so in practice, when caring for patients with heart failure, what do you think the contemporary role of ejection fraction will be in the future? Yeah, and I I think that we were uh, at least mildly surprised not to see any attenuation of benefit in deliver with rising ejection fraction, as we had seen with the RAS inhibitors, as we had seen with Sucubitril Valsartan. And it may very well be that, um, that different drugs behave differently with respect to ejection fraction. The drugs that are more uh, neurohormonal modulators and vasodilators that we've been studying all along may behave differently from SGLT2 inhibitors that obviously have a unique um, mechanism of action. Um, I, I think that what this tells us is that this is this is a drug and this class of drugs more broadly can be used across the full spectrum of ejection fraction, and we should be using it um, uh, in patients regardless of EF. Now, does that mean we shouldn't measure EF? No, I don't think so, because there are other therapies that may only benefit the patients who have ejection fraction below normal, like Sucubitril Valsartan, like mineralic corticoid receptor antagonists, where we don't see much benefit in those patients at higher ejection fractions. Uh, There are other drugs, as you know, that are being uh, thought about and tested in the highest range of ejection fractions that might have unique abilities there, like, for example, myosin inhibitors. And that's maybe still going to be a niche area. The other thing that I think we have to realize is that there are some people in that highest range of ejection fraction who might actually have 
diseases that are targetable, like amyloidosis um, or hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And we have to be cognizant of that and uh, peel those patients off. Um, most importantly, uh, I think we have to realize we have not cured heart failure with uh, any of the things that we've done over the past uh, decade or more. Um, certainly, we've made a dent. Um, your uh, paper in The Lancet last year where you showed the potential benefit of uh, using uh, both uh, using a SGLT2 inhibitor, Sucubitril, Valsartanum, Mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists in patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, uh, showing really quite substantial benefits. I think that's really important that we realize that um, there are multiple therapies with multiple distinct mechanisms of action that we need to use in our patients with heart failure. Uh, but we have to realize there's still residual risk, and that's why uh, we need to keep considering new therapies uh, to lower that residual risk, hopefully eventually to zero. I hope so too, Scott. I hope so too. And and in the, the last question to you is perhaps the easiest question. Uh, and that's translating delivered to clinical care and how you would manage a patient in 2022 with HEFPEF. Um, and how does deliver now inform that care? And I was joking about being easy. This is uh, clearly, of course, a complex issue. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I think if I had a patient in front of me, um, uh, with heart, with clearly with heart failure, I was convinced they had the clinical syndrome of heart failure and their ejection fraction was, um, between 40 and 60%. I would say, okay, this patient clearly deserves to be on an SGLT2 inhibitor. Now, uh, one thing I would do in certain instances, I would make sure that I wasn't dealing with amyloid heart disease or um, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. But short of that, uh, I think that um, there's no reason that patients shouldn't be on an SGLT2 inhibitor. And if they had ejection fraction below normal, and I was able to prescribe Sucubitril Valsartan, I would probably use that too based on our results from the, uh, the Paragon trial. And there are many of us who believe that in appropriate patients, MRAs can be beneficial as well. Um, you got to be careful, of course, with MRAs because of renal function. Uh, but in the appropriate patient, I suspect we will be using all three of those medications uh, in, in, in those patients. Curiously, uh, there seems to be a lot of use of beta blockers in this population. Uh, we've seen this over and over in our trials without any real uh, data. And um, I, I think we have to be a little bit careful of that, uh, in particular, because some of these patients uh, do end up having some chronotropic incompetence. Oh, it's an exciting time, Scott. And we've already seen quick evolution in the guidelines in the last year, including in removal of beta blockers as a recommendation, uh, really for HEFPEF at all, and uh, uh, in part because of the issues you raised. So we hope you enjoyed this inaugural issue with Professor Scott Solomon, produced by Radcliffe uh, Medical Education. The podcast series is supported through an unrestricted educational grant from AstraZeneca. Thank you so much for listening, and I really look forward 
to seeing you in following months to continue this series as a focus on heart failure care today. Thank you so much, Scott, for joining us. And thank you all for listening. Thanks so much, Muthu.